Well, happy Sabbath, everyone. It is truly an honor to be here on, uh, on the campus of Loma Linda University. And I'm not saying that just because we had snow last Sabbath and on Easter. Can you believe that? We had snow, accumulating snow, at uh, Andrews University in Michigan. Where's Al Gore when you need him? Just when we're talking global warming, and then they get this crazy, crazy uh, spring winter. Anyway, it is an honor to be here. That aside, it's an honor to be here, and and I'll just uh, tell you from the heart, because of the passion and persistence of a particular young adult here at Loma Linda University. The only reason you and I are together tonight is because of one of your co-eds who is taking pharmacy. In fact, she graduates in just a month. And I'm talking about Annie Kernow. Incredible lady. I never knew Annie before. Got an email from her. I think it was last, uh, Terry, last um, October. And she said, Pastor, would you be willing to come and meet with some students here on a weekend in April? Our school's over in three weeks. I'm supposed to be preaching tomorrow. I wrote her an answer thanking her for the three dates she gave. All the dates are just not going to work. I almost hit send, and my uh, executive assistant, Sherry, she said, You know, Dwight, I think you need to pray about this one. And so I did, and I Shot an email finally back to Annie. I said, okay, here's the deal. If you go to my friends, Randy Roberts, Pastor Randy, your pastor right here in this beautiful church. By the way, isn't this something? Last time I saw this place, you were meeting in some gym somewhere, and this was a mess. This is great. I love this. Anyway, so so you you go to Pastor Randy, and you go to my friend Hyveth, Pastor Hyveth, and you make sure that the two spiritual leaders on this campus are are amenable to some guest preacher from out of nowhere coming in here. And if they say okay, then let's talk further. And she, bless her heart, Annie, just she just took it. And Annie, the Spirit used you. And you went to everybody up the, the uh, food chain here and talked to them and got the support of the university. And So that's why we're here together. It took a young adult with a vision... You know, her passion is not only for God. She has a passion for this university. I am amazed. Hallelujah. We've got some kids like that at Andrews University that love the school that they're at, just like you do, love God, and are thinking, you know, we've got to get young adults together. We just need to huddle up and have some community of faith fellowship, and let's just do it. And so I'm proud of Annie, and, and I guess next Friday night you're going to start doing this on a regular basis. And I think, I think that's spirit-led as well. So thank you very much for having Karen. Yeah, let me have my girlfriend stand up. You know, we've been married almost 33 years. I want you to see Karen. She's just a wonderful young lady and uh, honor to have her. And, of course, an extra bonus for us was to be able to come out here where my mother is living in Banning with her husband, Bert. And so, Mom, you know, we don't get to do this very often. Can you and Bert stand? And, and uh, there they are. She's the lady that brought me into this world, and it's such an honor to have her sitting in the audience. We don't get to see her very much. Oh, and my Uncle Ralph and Aunt Pat are here, and <laughs> really they are, and Uncle Ralph and Aunt Pat Watts. I got some cousins sitting right over there. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway. So we're here tonight and tomorrow morning twice, and then uh, once tomorrow afternoon to get into the Word together. You brought your Bible. I know you did. I want to do something that I've never done before because Annie said, Hey, Dwight, I saw this thing on Hope TV, and would you mind sharing that stuff with us if we get together? And so I want to do this. Um, You got a study guide tonight when you came in for rumor number one. We're going to get to that study guide in just a moment, but put a little addendum together for rumor one tonight and rumor two tomorrow morning at 930 in that hall up, uh, up the mall here. And I'd like to go through this, this first addendum. 
And the reason is because I understand we're on a university campus. I come from a university campus. I know that not every university student is, is going to be as excited as I am about the veracity of this book right here. And there are going to be some are saying, you know what, I'm just not sure that this book is reliable anymore. Can't speak to the third millennium and prove it to me. And so I'm going to prove it to you right now. I'd like to give you seven compelling evidences for the veracity of this book right here. Which is boom, boom, boom. We'll fly through these seven. Then, uh, then, uh, then I want to have a prayer with you. And read to you a letter I received five weeks ago from the war front in Baghdad, Iraq. Five weeks ago, I got an email from a soldier. I'm going to read that to you. All right? But first, I want to share these um, seven compelling evidences. And I got my little, well, I tell you what, just be praying that this works. Because it, um, Andrews, somebody's doing this in a booth and... I don't have to touch a thing, but uh, we're going to do it anyway. Just kind of do it barefoot together. Let me share with you. There. Got me worried for a moment. I want to share with you seven compelling evidences. You have, a, you have this little addendum. Let's just fly through them. I want to give them seven to you. You say, oh, now listen, Dwight, I'm already a believer. I don't have any problem with the book. Good. I, you will now have seven reasons you can share with a skeptical or non-believing colleague, associate, friend, neighbor of yours. And you can, just, you, you can use these, uh, these seven and pass them along. A lot of people accuse Christians of, of turning to the Bible to prove the Bible. In other words, using circular reasoning. I mean, you're going into the book to prove the book. How, how wise is that? That's not fair at all. Okay, so let's... Let's use external evidences first. Let me just fly through these because I want to get to that first rumor. The first rumor we have got to hear tonight. Here is evidence number one. Jot this down, please. Number one, the preeminence of the Holy Scripture among all human literature. So I hit that thing twice, so we got two of them up there. So you might as well go ahead and fill up the second one. No, evidence number one, the preeminence of the Bible among human literature. Uh, the Bible is preeminent in its circulation. Let me just run some numbers by you real quick. You have this addendum. You can fill this in. The Bible is now translated into 400 languages with portions of it in 2,500 languages on this planet. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not dealing with a little backwater, redneck book that has not seen the light of day in vast swaths of the human race. The Bible is the most circulated book on earth. All right? So let's just talk about external evidence. Look at this. The Gideon's International, everybody knows Gideon. When you stay in a motel, Gideon has been there before you and he has his Bible there. The Gideon's International placed and distributed more than 56 million complete copies of the Bible globally. This is, this is six years ago, 2001. That averages a million copies a week or 107 copies every minute are going out into the earth. So evidence number one, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about the, the circulation of the Bible. Guys, I don't know, you may want to move that uh, laptop a little closer here because I'm, I'm shooting through something here and it's just not quite making it. I can hear it trying real hard in my hand, but it's just, there we go. The Bible is also preeminent in its influence. So we're talking about preeminence in, uh, in literature. Number two, the Bi this is still under that as a subpoint. The Bible is preeminent in its influence. Take a look at this. Man, this is going to be a long night. There have been more books written about the Bible than any, than any other subject. More books have been written about the Bible than any other subject. Now watch this. More authors have quoted from the Bible than any other source. We're not talking about some little, some little forgotten piece of, of ancient literature. We're dealing with the Bible being preeminent among religious writings. You want to talk about the Quran, where the whole world is focused. These rumors out of the East. And of course, we automatically think of the Middle East. The Quran over the Quran... The Bible is preeminent. Bhagavad Gita, over all religious uh, writings, the Bible is preeminent. Uh, and sometimes somebody will come up to you and say something like this. You know, look, at any book, anywhere, written by anyone, could on any level compare to the Bible. That would be one of the, most, one of the grossest statements of ignorance you could make. It simply is not true. The Bible is preeminent. Evidence number one. Let's fly to the, uh, evidence number two. The, uh, the Bible has been preserved under attack. It's been attacked by man. Everybody knows the French infidel, the famous French infidel centuries ago, Voltaire. You know Voltaire. Voltaire predicted that in 100 years, Christianity will be gone and the Bible will be found only in a museum. Today, you can only find Voltaire in a museum and the Bible is the hottest selling book on earth. 
So don't let anybody tell you that the Bible has somehow been stamped out. The Bible has been the most targeted piece of human literature in the history of the race. People have, have resorted to every humanly possible effort to destroy that book. And it still survives. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you what, you are looking at a shining evidence of its divine origin. All right? All right, so preservation under attack. You have the attack of man. And then you also have the attack of time. Oh, come on. You just got this old book. There are no manuscripts left anymore for the Bible. Are you kidding? Look at this. Uh, today, 5,600 ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament exist. There are 10,000 Latin manuscripts. There are 9,300 early manuscripts. Nearly 25,000 early manuscripts exist today. The closest book in the human race is Homer's Iliad, and there are only 643 partial manuscripts for it. Don't you tell me that we don't have the book passed on through history. The book exists. Seven compelling evidences. Let's go to, uh, maybe this is evidence number three, the proof of archaeology. Go to, your, go, to, go to Google sometime. Google in the words archaeology and Bible. That's all you have to do. You'll have so many websites, you'll spend the rest of your life just examining archaeological evidence for the Holy Scriptures. I, I come from a university campus where we're very proud of an archaeological museum that we have at Andrews University. Why? Because the evidence, as that old writer once uh, wrote, the, the spade confirms the book. All right? Okay, number four, internal consistency. This is amazing, just amazing. Do you understand about the Bible? Internal consistency, what are you talking about? Well, let's put this up. The Bible is a collection of 40 authors who wrote over a period of 1,500 years, and they wrote the, on the two subjects nobody can agree about, religion and politics. And the book survived. There is an internal consistency with the scriptures that cannot be matched with any other book in the human race. And yet, this consistency, how do you explain it? The only way I can explain it, ladies and gentlemen, is that I believe God wrote it. Now, look at that. Come on, don't you give this to me. Oh, Dwight, you don't understand. No, I understand. God didn't write the book physically himself. I understand that. He used human, human scribes. I understand that. He did not even dictate the book. He gave them thoughts and they wrote it down. But the point is, somebody divine has superintended the preservation of this book. And tonight we're going to go into, we're going to go into one of the most phenomenal portions of that book. We've got to have confidence in what we're going to read tonight. Of course, there are different perspectives. You've got four eyewitnesses to one single automobile accident. You're going to have four different perspectives. That doesn't negate any of the perspectives, does it? No, it doesn't. All right. Number five. No. Yeah, we already covered that. I believe in the divine authorship of the Holy Scripture. Made that point, but you do need to fill this in. That's the only explanation for the Bible's compelling internal consistency regarding human morality and divine truth. Write that in. That's the only way we can, we can possibly describe how, in fact, this book speaks with such commanding authority. How about fulfilled prophecy? Now we're going to move into internal evidences. I understand. We did the external. We're in the internal now, but think about prophecy. Come on, guys. You're bright young scholars here in this university. Think about prophecy itself. For example, let's just do just one, uh, one prophecy. There are 61. There are all kinds of prophecies, but let's just take, take the 61 major prophecies concerning the life of Jesus Christ written centuries before his birth. Uh, mathematicians have, uh, have theorized, okay, if, if just eight of those prophecies could be fulfilled. What are the statistical probabilities of eight of the 61, eight being fulfilled? Let's put it on the screen here. The, the, the probabilities are 10 to the 17th. Do you know what 10 to the 17th is? That is 100,000 trillion. One out of 100,000 trillion times you could get eight of 61 prophecies, all eight to come true. That would be, by the way, that would be like covering, they say, covering the state of Texas. You heard of Texas? Covering Texas with two feet high of silver dollars and then blindfolding a woman and telling her, you wade out into that state of Texas, two feet high of silver dollars, and you find the one that is marked with the red dot on it. That's the same odds for eight of the 61. Ladies and gentlemen, not eight of the 61 came true. 61 of the 61. You're not dealing with a book of somebody's fabled imagination. There's something supernatural between the covers of these old books that we still carry around. All right. Yeah. Number six, the experience of others. 
I've seen a man come face to face to death and with peace stare death in the face and go into death with a supernatural calm that can only be explained by what he took from his journey into this book. I've seen a woman live in hell on earth with peace. How do you explain a woman like that? Something in the book has fired her heart and given her courage. I have seen young adults struggle with, with mind and soul-destroying addictions that would take a man to the dust. And I have seen young adults, through the power of what they found in this book, walk away from an enchaining life addiction. The experience of the human race, those who have gone to this book, cannot be contramanded. It's too overwhelming. Evidence number six is the evidence of those who have read the book. And finally, evidence number seven, my personal experience. When I was a kid, I learned a song. Kids still sing it, I think. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. A few baby boomers here, I see. Ladies and gentlemen, I can only testify to you that my life, through what is contained between these covers, my life has been radically changed. I'm not going to ask you to go into a passage we are about to go into. Some of you are going to have to blow the dust off your Bible. You have never been to this passage in your life. I'm not going to ask you to go to a passage that is not capable under the power of the Holy Spirit who is present tonight to change your life. This is a divine book. And you can walk away from it and you can spit on it and you can burn it till there's ashes and it'll, like a phoenix, rise up out of those ashes every time. I commend to you the Holy Word of God. So, seven compelling... Oh, by the way, tomorrow morning, 9.30, before rumor number two, seven phenomenal benefits that will come to you. If you, as a, as a young adult professional, if you will take this book... And eat the book, and I'm going to share with you a strategy on how you can do just that. Tomorrow morning, 9.30. Not at 11. It's a completely different subject at 11. 9.30 tomorrow morning. All right. That, I promised I would read a, a, an email. I've got it right here. We're in a war tonight. You know that. I know that. I've got an email to prove it. The email happens to come from my son-in-law. My son-in-law is a medic with the U.S. Army Rangers. Just talked to my daughter tonight on her way driving in here. First, first, uh, first infantry. So, oh, great. You believe in the war, Dwight? Nope. Psalm 120, verse 7. They speak of war, but I am for peace. That's my, that's my life motto. Psalm 120, verse 7. They speak of war, but I am for peace. I'm not in favor of a war. I don't think Andrew is in favor of the war. He wants to go into med school someday. I got an email from him on March 7. You know how many days ago that is? March 7. I'm thankful for your letter. So I sent him, a, I sent him an email. Think, well, I wonder if he'll get it. And the front line's there in Baghdad. I'm thankful for your letter. This is going to be short. Life is tough here. We get rocketed or mortared almost daily. He's a medic. So he's into life-saving like you. We're running an average of three traumas a week. We lose a lot of people from IEDs, not our own unit. Since subsequent to writing this, he just learned this week the first of his unit was killed this, last, this week, this week, from an IED, roadside explosive. We're in a little hospital. It's really just four trauma beds, a lab, and an x-ray with dental. It's small, but it's, it's one of two level two, trauma center, two level two trauma centers in Baghdad. We're kept very busy. After a while, you get a God complex until somebody puts you in check, okay, God complex means that when you're getting rocketed and you're, you're the only one out of the bunker running to get an injured soldier, that would be me. I'm not sure what it is, but when you see a fallen brother less than 50 feet from you, there's nothing in the world that's going to stop a medic from going out there. The last time it happened, I got written up. It's against the law for a medic to, try, to run out to where a sniper can get you. You understand that? He said, I got written up. Last time I, that happened, I got written up. But as I was leaving the room, I saw the platoon sergeant throw the right up in the trash. I've got a medic, somebody trained to save lives like you people here. How could somebody not respond to somebody in danger? We're so short on space. 
Don't, do, please don't get me wrong. I thank God every day I'm alive. I'd like to ask a favor. We're going in the sector very soon. We're going to do something awful. The last unit that did this, did this lost 60 people. So if you could, this upcoming Sabbath, send up a prayer for us over here. Signed, Andrew. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in a war. You understand that? But you know what? I'm not cons that, that isn't the war that, that really concerns me tonight. I'm thinking of the war that has the campus where I'm from, Andrews University, and the campus where you're from, Loma Linda University. I'm thinking of the war that holds us in its dark and diabolic crosshairs 24-7. I'm thinking of a war for every single one of us tonight. We are in a war. How shall we survive this war? Tonight I hear some rumors coming from the east. Rumors from the east. There'll be three rumors that we'll share over this very brief Sabbath together. Open your Bible with me tonight to a book and a chapter that you haven't been to perhaps ever or perhaps in a long, long time. Open your Bible, please, to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. I need to go back to the... Uh, go that. Daniel chapter 10. And I want to pray with you as we get into the Word together. Holy Father, thank you tonight. Our witness blessed us just a moment ago with that, that call, to, uh, that prayer out of our hearts. Oh, Lord, take our hands. Precious Lord, please, please take our hands. We just spent a fleeting moment assuring ourselves that this book that will engage our minds for the next few moments is not a cunningly devised fable. There is something supernatural that has preserved it to this very generation. So we go to this dusty piece of apocalyptic literature. May, may the rumors that begin to sound from these old and yellowed pages put us on alert with the joy of anticipation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 10. Nobody reads Daniel 10. Daniel chapter 10. Let's read it together. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was also called Belteshazzar. And I want to hit the pause button right there. Do you, know why this, do you know why this guy has two names? He has two names because he's a captive when he's writing this. I mean, you try to imagine the moment you're getting ready to go off to university. Terrorists raid your hometown in the middle of the night. Hand over your mouth. Gagged. Bound. Thrown into a trunk you are. Driven to a truck. Driven to a plane. Flown over an ocean. When they take off the blindfold, you find yourselves given a foreign name from a foreign god. From a foreign religion, you're required to join in a foreign language you have never spoken, in a foreign school that will train you for foreign service in a foreign government. And all of this, just the beginning for this writer of a 70-year long and lonely exile from home. Daniel is, Daniel is 18 in Daniel chapter 1. He's at the end of his life in Daniel 10. He's now, he's now 88 years old, old and wizened, white and bent. This man whose, whose name means Daniel, whose name means God is my judge. You can call me Belteshazzar, but every time you call me the name of your God, I will whisper, God the creator, the living God is my judge. This is the same Daniel. He's moved through administration. He's moved through empires. He's now in the Persian Empire. Notice this now. In the third year of Cyrus, go back to, uh, go back to uh, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message, and he had understanding of the vision. Daniel is about to receive the most comprehensive, the longest prophecy in all of Holy Scripture. Daniel 10, 11, and 12. Notice the one-sentence uh, thesis or summary of that prophecy. I love the way the NIV 
renders that middle line there. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. The NIV renders it this way and more accurately reflects the Hebrew. In this case, I'm reading from the New King James tonight. The NIV renders it, its message was true and it concerned a great war. That point is so critical, ladies and gentlemen. I wish you'd take the study guide. Now, there, was, there should have been a study guide handed to you when you came in tonight that is for rumor number one. Did you get a study guide? Anybody here not get a study guide? You somehow got in and you don't have a study guide. Just a few hands up. I don't know, uh, Annie, if there's uh, anybody in the... Okay, they're going to get it. Guys that raised your hand, just be patient. You're going to have to keep your hand up, but just a little higher than that. And they're going to come in and, and I'm going to just uh, go ahead here. Take out your study guide. Let, let's just jot this down. Let's be clear on what we're about to, uh, to read and study together this evening. Rumors from the East. Rumor number one. By the way, if you miss an answer, if we just go flying through this, we got a website, uh, www.pmchurch.tv, and uh, you can go to that website, and you, you look under uh, the series Rumors from the East, and you can get the answers, because the answers are at the bottom of all the study guides on the website. But let's jot this down, would you please? Number one. Daniel 10. Jot it down, please. Daniel 10 is the introduction to the longest and most comprehensive prophecy in all of Holy Scripture. Now, remember, when it came to the birth of Christ, just 8 out of 61 coming true, 10 to the 17th uh, chances. Probably 1 out of 10 to the 17th. All 61 came true for Christ. Could it be true here in Daniel 10 as well? Hold on. So you write that in, and then uh, would, you, would you just fill it in? The NIV rendition of Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. That's our theme tonight, war. You know, if you go to Google, and you... Uh, this just blew me out of the water when I tried this. You go to Google, and you type, and you've got to put quotation marks on either side, so it means these three words need to... And, and they're come, the study guides are coming just down the, uh, the uh, row right now. If you hold your hand up, uh, they'll get them to you. But you type in... World War Three, you know the one one one, the I I I. World War Three, but the quotation marks around it, so it's it's dealt with as a single phrase. It'll blow you out of the water. How many talking heads, political pundits, and uh, bloggers are now discussing the Earth, the human race, moving into World War Three? You never think about it. I mean, last summer we had uh, Israel and the Hezbollah. We got this, this, this mess in Iraq, and now we got Iran knocking on the door. We have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring as far as the Middle East is concerned. And so it's no wonder. And the press, I understand, has, has uh, kind of jazzed up this whole hype in the American public. But uh, let, me, let me put a, a, a website on the screen for you there. Not a website, but rather a, a, a stat released from a website. In a poll released, you see this by Angus, Angus Reid, Global Scan, 42%, this is, I can believe this, 42% of American respondents think humanity is headed towards World War III, and 20% believe it has already begun. And by the way, it's not just Americans. You, you, you surf the web through Google. You, you come to realize they are thinking intelligent people who are looking at a coalescing on this planet. Hey. Is it World War III? I have absolutely no idea. Are you bothered by it? I'm not bothered by it. Are you afraid tonight? I'm not afraid. The fact of the matter is we're all focused on these four eyes, on Israel, on Iran, on Iraq, on Islam. Everybody's looking. Rumors from the east. What will it be coming over here? I'm not concerned about those rumors. There are, there are instead, there is the low rumble of another set of rumors that concern the likes of you and me outside of the political realm. And it's those rumors, the approaching tread of those rumors, that tonight uh, I find compelling. So I want to read, uh, read this with you. Concerned a great war. So whatever is happening here concerns a great war. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food. I ate no meat or wine, none of that came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till the three whole weeks were fulfilled. You see what's happening here, ladies and gentlemen, is that Daniel has heard rumors from the West. Cyrus, the new king of Persia, has sent a band of these young, the, the, these uh, former exiles back to Jerusalem. And what Daniel is hearing by way of the grapevine is that it is going awful. It is going awfully for these who have returned to the holy city. They're, they're running into roadblock after resistance, after obstacle. And Daniel is absolutely in consternation 
certain that God's prophecies are not going to come true and that Jerusalem will not come and be raised up again. Worried, sick that the small band that Cyrus has sent is going to fail. You know what Daniel does? Daniel does what he does all through this book. It's an amazing thing about this. This kid who began as a young adult and moved his way up to the third highest political position, third highest as a captive exile in the entire empire. Daniel does what he does best throughout the book. Jot this down. Whenever Daniel is faced with a crisis, whenever he's faced with a crisis, he goes to his knees. I mean, keep your pen moving. Keep your pen moving. Crisis number one. There's a crisis over a diet in chapter one. What does Daniel do? He goes to his knees. There's a crisis over a dream in chapter two. What does Daniel do? He goes to his knees. There's a crisis over a decree in chapter six. What does Daniel do? He goes to his knees. There's a crisis over a decision in Daniel chapter 9. What does Daniel do? He goes to his knees. There's a crisis over a massive difficulty, distant difficulty in chapter 10. What does Daniel do? He does what he does best. He goes to his knees because, my, my young friends, there are, simp- there are times when the only port- potent resource for you and me is to fast and pray. I know that sounds old-fashioned, and I know it's not, you know, we're just not into fasting and praying anymore. But I want you to hold, put, hold that in abeyance for a moment. Hold that notion in abeyance. There are times, the reality about you and me is we are so sophisticated, we are so self-confident with our Western individualism that we, it really is painful for us to get all Twitter-pated about really need, but, but needing God to that degree. So we give lip service for a quick little prayer with the, with, with the subplot. I'll go ahead and take care of this anyway, God. Just wanted to let you know I'm in trouble. We just don't want to get agitated because it might, it might push us to the max. And so we hold back. And you know what? Sometimes, if this is true for institutions, by the way. This is true for congregations. This is true for pastors, and this is true for parishioners. There are times in life when you have to realize you are up against something so big that it is humanly impossible for you. And a quick little out-the-door prayer in the morning to solve what is, what is looming and towering over your life. When life gets in your face, jot it down. You've got to get on your knees. That's the point. When life gets in your face, you must get on your knees. Humble your heart before God and say, hey, God, I know I, know, I, I, know I, haven't, I haven't really called for help, but I'm telling you, I'm re- I, I am earnestly serious now. I need you, Jesus. Help me. And by the way, jot this down. You, you can practice like Daniel, a modified fast. You don't have to go the whole nine yards and just, oh, boy, I can't drink water. and can't, can't eat anything. Daniel didn't do that. What does it say about Daniel? It said he went without pleasant food. He went without Dairy Queen for three weeks. That wouldn't hurt a whole lot of us. He said, I'm just going without. Now, it says here he went without meat and wine, and that, uh, scholars believe, in fact, is indicative of the Passover. I'm not even going to celebrate the Passover. So it it seems to be a clue that this this whole vision came around the time of the Passover, but I'm not even going to eat the lamb, the Passover lamb. I'm not going to drink the Passover wine. No, I'm I'm going to refrain from some of the food that I normally eat. And by the way, it says here, did you notice that? It says, I did not anoint myself at all. That means for three weeks, I did not take a bath. Nobody's recommending that for you. In fact, the Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 17, Jesus said, when you fast, boy, girl, when you fast, here's what you do. You go ahead and take that bath, you put on your aftershave, you put on that perfume, and you go out, and the world has no idea that you're fasting. Too many people think that the fasting is something you wear so that everybody sees you and says, Whoa, what a holy man he is. Jesus says, You got your reward. If that's what you want, that's all you want, that, that little quip you heard in the marketplace was your reward because you didn't get through to God anyway. Mm. Modified fasting means there's something that you're going to go without. You just deny yourself. You say, what is this? Is it going to prove to God that I'm serious? No, no, no. You're going to, you're going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to move the hand of God by forcing him? No, he's not going to be, he's not going to be changed just because you went without food. But what you're saying to God is, I am so serious that if there's anything in my lifestyle right now that might cloud my vision and block the Spirit's access to my mind, I'm leaving it off. And that includes DQ. I leave it off. So for three weeks... This guy's serious. Three weeks. He's in this modified fast. All right. Got to go. Look at this. Oh, mercy does God. After three weeks. Notice this. After three weeks. Here you go. Verse 4. 
Now, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris. Do you know where Daniel is? He's in Baghdad. He's in Baghdad, ladies and gentlemen. It's Baghdad. That's Babylon. Baghdad. The war today is where the war was shown to Daniel in vision. It's Baghdad. Okay, so I was by the side of the great river. That is the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold, a certain man. Look at this. A certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with the gold of Euphaz. His body was like burls, kind of a yellowish hue. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone, I saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see that vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. All these guys know is that there is a roaring and a rumbling. They cannot see what's happening, but something ain't right, and they're gone. Just Daniel's left. They fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength, writes this 88-year-old man. No strength. I'm down on my hands and knees. And by the way, he's on, he's, he is on his face as a result of this vision. Yet I heard the sound of his words. And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Would you write this down, please? Daniel has just been granted a vision of Almighty God himself. Unbelievable. You know how we know? Jot this down. We know because the accounts of Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 1 almost perfectly parallel. Well, we just read Daniel's physical description of the divine being that he has just penned. I mean, you could look up Ezekiel 1 some other time, but let me go, let, let, let me just show you the similarities with Revelation 1 and uh, Daniel chapter 10. In fact, there were John the Revelator and Daniel, amazing set of similarities. Keep your pen moving. We'll scribble them and go fast. Daniel and John, jot these down, please. Both of them are in their late 80s. Isn't that something? Both of them are in their late 80s. Both of them, by the way, are in exile. Both. John's on Patmos, right? Isn't he on Patmos? Right? Yep, okay. So they're both in exile. Both, interestingly enough, are beside water. Aegean Sea for John, Patmos, Tigris River for Daniel. Keep writing. Both received their vision on the Sabbath. This is a compelling parallel. Both received their vision on the Sabbath. Apparently, for the creator of the universe, there are some significant events that he reserves for that day, this day. By the way, you say, ah, you're, are you sure? Yeah, let me show, let me, let me show you this. Um, in those days, this is Daniel chapter 10, verse 2. Let me just go back to that verse. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. The Hebrew indicates three weeks of days. In other words, it's at the end of a three-week cycle. The only possible end means it's the Holy Sabbath. All right, so he's in vision on the Holy Sabbath. How about John? Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, you know this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voices of a trumpet. The Lord's day. You know what, you know what day of the book? In this book, you know what day is called the Lord's Day? Yeah, you're right. Jot it down. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 28. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You knew this, but jot it down anyway. Mark chapter 2, verse 28. Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And what day is the Lord's Day? Look at Isaiah chapter 58, verses, just verse 13. God's speaking. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on, on what? My day. This is my day. You got Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I gave those to you. I got one day. I tithed my own week and I kept one for me. I got a day. It's my day. My day. Just you and me. You and me today. Both Daniel and John received their comprehensive prophetic visions on the Holy Sabbath. By the way, no, jot this down. Both of them are visited personally by Christ. The descriptions of Daniel chapter 10 and, and Revelation chapter 1 are simply too, too, too similar. You know what? And, and, and this is such, such great news because this is a retirement community. You're not going to believe this, but even uh, in Michigan, we've got a, we a nice-sized retirement community there at Andrews University. You know what I want to say to the, the I, want to, I, want, I want to draw your attention to this, to those of you who are over the age of 70. 
70, 80. Sometimes in a university setting like this, you get the impression that everything is focused on the young. And let's be honest, Pastor Randy will tell you this, and I'll tell you this, for Pioneer Memorial Church, we've been raised up for one reason, and that's to minister to our campuses, and the campuses are dominantly young. Hallelujah. But sometimes, because of that overt, strategic ministry and mission focus, we forget, we forget the truth that the older you grow, the closer you come to Jesus. The older you grow, the closer you come to Jesus. And those of us who are young need to, with a, with a degree of, of great respect and honor, recognize that those who have earned the right to have white hair have done so, have done so at the cost of a life-changing walk with the God of this universe. You know, the Bible says you rise up and you call the hoary head blessed. You know what the hoary head is? It's the gray head. Call it blessed. Hallelujah. Yeah. Next time you see, you see a senior citizen, you just, you just remind that dear friend of Jesus, you know what? You, you, you're so old. No, don't, don't put it that way. You just say, you know what? Because you're old, you're so close to Jesus, and I'm so proud of you, and I am blessed to be able to worship. That's why in our churches... Yours and mine, we don't, we don't send all the children somewhere else. We don't send all the universities somewhere else. Are you kidding? You worship in this church. This is a university church. We're all ages here. We don't just compartmentalize and send everybody off to be with their own age group. How sad that would be. It would destroy the church, by the way. It would destroy the church because the elderly miss the young and the young need the elderly. So, isn't this great? Christ appears in person to two aged friends of his who are both in their late 80s. I love that. By the way, there's, the, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's another parallel. Both, isn't this amazing? Both fall on their faces before Jesus. When Christ appears to them, and he was only Jesus to John, he was a pre-incarnate Christ to uh, Daniel. When Christ appears, both fall on their faces. And both hear the words, oh, I love this, do not be afraid. No need to fear. What's the theme tonight? War, I'm not afraid. There is a war going on. Oh, brother, we're just about ready to move into the heart of it. This is the climax. But I'm not afraid. God says, do not be afraid. All right. Let's go. Verse 10 now. Verse 10. Suddenly a hand touched me. So he's down on his face. Remember, his face is in the ground. He's on his face before God. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, this now, this is another being that touches Daniel. He saw one being in vision. There's another being now. And he says, oh, Daniel, man greatly beloved. Oh, the moment he speaks those words, we know who it is. Because in, in chapter 9, he used the same language. This is none other than Gabriel himself. You ever heard of Lucifer? Of course you heard of Lucifer. You know what Lucifer's doing now? He's ruining this universe. Gabriel's a, Gabriel is the angel that stepped into Lucifer's place. Gone is Lucifer, son of the morning. Now comes Gabriel, man of God. That's what his name means. Man of God. Gabriel touches, oh, Daniel. Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for I have been sent to you. You listening to me, boy? Then he says, and while, he, while he was speaking this word to me, so Daniel, I've been on his face, so he just slowly, this 88-year-old man, slowly standing, being standing in front of him. One being sent the whole Roman battalion as dead men, right? On Easter morning, isn't that right? Yeah, so this, this, is, not, this, is, not, this is not some little dim. This, this is a glorious manifestation. Daniel says, I stood trembling. Well, you and I would be trembling too. And then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. You know what, Daniel? Three weeks ago when you started praying, boy, we heard you. We heard you. Three weeks ago, this is amazing, ladies and gentlemen, watch this. Three weeks ago, we heard you begin to ask for help. You set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God. Your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. Listen, Gabe, if you, if you are here because of my words, then why have I had to wait three weeks with a modified fast until you show up? You heard me three weeks ago. Why weren't you here? Now the veil is drawn aside. There's no other verse in all of Holy Scripture that draws the veil aside to the cosmic war that engages this planet tonight. 
Like this verse you're about to read. Look at verse 13. I was on my way, Daniel, three weeks ago. I heard you. And the father said, go, go. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. The only reason I'm here, boy, is because Michael showed up. And because he came, I was released to come to you. This is absolutely phenomenal. The vista we have for one split second granted to the great controversy. This war between heaven and earth. Do you understand what's just happened here? This W-A-R that is going on in the universe? Look at Daniel. We heard you three weeks ago. I was assigned to come to you with God's response, but I couldn't because of the dark prince of Persia. By the way, where is Persia today? Where is Persia today? Iran. You're in in Baghdad, Daniel. I was coming, but I came through Iran on my way to Baghdad. A whole lot of the world is going to Iran through Baghdad, isn't it? I came through Iran on the way to Baghdad, and I was held back. This dark and evil prince said, Persia is mine. You can't come. Stop. And I said, what do you mean it's yours? I serve the living creator, God. Move aside. And he wouldn't move for three weeks, hand to hand. We battled. You know why, Daniel? Because the dark prince of Persia was all over Cyrus, and we had to keep Cyrus free if God would have a tiny little remnant to go back to Jerusalem and be planted and be saved. So we fought, the dark prince and I. I took his place. We fought. I couldn't win. I was no match. Neither he for me or I for him. So Michael came. And when Michael came, I was released. Michael's there now. I'm here to answer your prayer. Three weeks later. Ladies and gentlemen, this is absolutely phenomenal. The vision we are granted to peer into with the veil drawn aside. No other verse in all the scripture like it. Michael shows up. Who is this Michael, by the way? Oh, write it down. I, th- I think I have this in the study guide. I don't think this is a fill in the blanks. You know who Michael is? His, n- his name means who is like God. That can be a question, who is like God. Or it can be a statement, who is like God. Whoever Michael is, whenever he walks around, people are thinking of God. Whenever Michael shows up, ah, I'm thinking of God. Who is like God? Who is like God? See? It's Michael. Who is he? Well, let's find out. Keep going. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 is Hebrew. He, uh, and my friend Jacques Dukan, who is a Hebrew authority at the Theological Seminary, Jacques, Jacques has shared this with me. The, the, the Hebrew there really can be translated. He is the first. He's the number one of the chief princes. Number one. Whoever he is, he's number one. Numero uno. Number one. All right. Who is he? Well, we know from Jude 9 that Michael is called the archangel. Whoever he is, he's called the ark, the ruler over the angels, whoever he is. We also know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, that the voice of the archangel will raise the dead at the second coming. And we know from John chapter 5, verse 28, that Jesus says, my voice will raise the dead. Well, A equals B and B equals C. Therefore, A equals C, which led the brilliant Protestant reformer Melanchthon to conclude that Michael is none other than the pre-existent Christ. If a mind as bright as Melanchthon's, who was, he was the brains behind Luther's Reformation. If Melanchthon believed it was the Christ, I have no problem accepting it myself. Ladies and gentlemen, the Scripture interprets itself. You can believe it with confidence. Michael is the pre-incarnate Christ. And by the way, jot this down. Michael only appears in apocalyptic literature. What are you talking about, Dwight? I'm talking about Daniel, Jude, and Revelation. Only three books in the enti- out of the 66, only these three are called apocalyptic. And only in these three does, does uh, Michael appear. And by the way, he only appears when there's battle between the forces of light and darkness. And also, by the way, every time Michael shows up, jot it down, he wins. He wins, he wins, he wins. Hallelujah. Every time he shows up, he wins. You say, well, this this is a a great battle. Oh, this was a great battle. This is nothing. This is nothing like the battle that Michael and Lucifer were going to have 560 years later. 
on a windswept summit called Calvary. This is nothing like that battle. See that picture? That's Michael. That's Michael who became Emmanuel, who is like God, became who is like man. He became one with us. And when he hung on that cross, Lucifer, now called Satan or adversary, Lucifer now says, I will throw every weapon of hell at you. I am the prince of this world. Just like he said over Persia, only now in the wilderness temptation, he said, the whole world is mine. I am the prince. You bow down and I'll give you this planet. You bow down to me. Same battle. Same protagonist. Same outcome. Michael wins when he shows up. You know what he's doing on that cross? He's taking the sin of every human being who will ever live on this planet from past, present, to future. He's taking all that sin and absorbing it into himself. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin you've... Have you ever sinned in your life? Ever sinned? Did you sin this week? Did you sin this week? How about today? Did you sin today? Did you? That sin. Or for me, those sins were dealt with by Michael, turned Emmanuel at Calvary. You take a look at that, take a look at that cross, ladies and gentlemen. That, that, that is the summit of the battle. That's where the war was won. Oh, there's a whole lot of battling going on yet, but that is where the outcome of the war was decided. You got something enslaving your life tonight? You got something like a ball and chain around you? Some of you getting ready to graduate in just a few weeks, and you know that you're going to drag this ball and chain with you wherever you go. My friend, you better not. You, you, you have no need to spend the rest of your life dragging that chain clattering behind you. You can be set free. Michael turned Emmanuel has died to free you from the dark forces that hold this planet. He's still the Prince of Persia. He's the Prince of Andrews. He's the Prince of Loma Linda. He says, he's a liar, but he claims us all, they're mine. Michael died 2,000 years ago to set you free. Oh, we're in a war. We are in a war tonight, ladies and gentlemen. I don't, I don't care about Israel. I don't care about Islam. Uh, the, the forces of Iraq, Iran, they're immaterial to me tonight. The, the greater war is the one that has sucked me into its vortex just like it has you. That war. You know what the war calls for? We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers in high places. Isn't that right? We wrestle against rulers in high places. God is so committed to human freedom that if you want to say no to Him, you can say no to Him tonight. You want to say no to Him tomorrow, you say no to Him tomorrow. You can say no to your dead. And He will honor that freedom because that's the most precious legacy you have, the right to say no instead of yes. But I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, if this war is as serious as Daniel 10 makes it appear, then I think it ought to be time when I intensify my yes to Him rather than a no. Look at this. Is this in your study guide? Let me see. Do you have this? Oh, you have, this is in your study guide. Jot it down, please. The great controversy between good and evil will increase in intensity, in intensity to the very close of time. In fact, write this down. In the war that we are in, intensification is the operative strategy of both sides. Yeah, you, of course. You didn't, think, you didn't think Satan was going to roll over and play dead. Of course he's going to play with an intensification. But the good news is, Michael, the... The Lord Jesus Christ is playing with a greater intensification. First John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The same intensification. Hey, listen, does it seem like it's intensifying these days around where you live in? Please, I went down to New Orleans. You know, we, we sent a whole team because we're a lot closer to Hurricane Katrina than you were. And so the opening of the school year last year, a year ago, we sent a team of buses down. Our Andrews kids are all over the place, all over the ground there in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. A year later, which would have been this last August, on the one-year anniversary, I got invited and it was an honor to go down and preach in the church that had been destroyed, the New Orleans first, had been flooded. They showed me the, where the marks had been of the mud water. You can't tell me that nature itself is not intensifying. Even nature. 
The whole planet is intensifying. And you, you know what? You and I go through life as if we, hunky-dory, as if we had 40 more years guaranteed to us. And after I retire, then I'm going to really get serious about being spiritual and I'm going to become active in my community of faith. Do you know how bankrupt that kind of thinking is? Do you understand that if you die putting off that intensification, it, it will be nobody's call but your own. Why would we put off what must be done now? There's no point in it. We're in a war and it is intensifying. You know what the strategy is? Intensify, 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 intensify. You know what that means? If you've been spending 10 minutes with God a day, let's just let's be generous. 10? Now, I, know, I know you've been spending a lot more than that. But if you've been spending 10 minutes with God a day, you know what, my dear friend? Given what you and I know about this battle, I suppose it would be okay to double the 10 to 20. Huh? You've been hurrying out of your apartment, hurrying out of that room, hurrying into the day. God, I'm, I'm on the swing shift. Got to do it. I've got, I've got rotations. You've been hurrying out and saying, I'll catch up some other day. Too many people are yet to find out they haven't caught up yet. And they're still running and they're in their 50s, and they're still running. The race will never stop. You have to stop it yourself and say, today, right now, intensify with Lord Jesus. I love my friend Doug Batchelor. You know Doug? Yeah, you do. Doug came and did a week of prayer for us, uh, and we did a, a night thing together. He did an evangelism thing. Maybe some of you saw it uh, this last fall. But in his week of prayer... I think this is the next slide. He used an illustration. Let's see. Yeah, this is it. He said, Doug, Doug says, hey, listen, guys, when you go into a hotel, huh? when you go into a hotel or a motel, have you noticed they have these little, they have these little uh, things? Huh? Ding. Ding. You know, what, what, what's the point of it? The point of it is you want to let somebody know, I'm ready to be served now. Ding. You're polite. You never go in there with ding, 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 ding. You're not dumb, you know. You're, ding. In fact, the, the, the lighter you do it, the more affluent you obviously are. Ding. So every, everybody knows about these. This is, this is the way you, you, you want a little bit of attention. That's what you do in a hotel. The problem is you and I have grown up thinking that's the way we get God's attention. Just a little, ding. Sorry to bother you, Lord. Just a little word on my way out. Ding. Doug says, what's the craziness of this? This is crazy. See, you know, what you know what we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be like Quasimodo. We're supposed to be on that bell and ringing it for all the world. Bong, 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 bong. Why? Intensification, that's why. No more of those little ding. Too much of our prayer life is summarized by that hotel ding bell. We've been called like Quasimodo to throw all the weight of our souls against that cord that reaches to heaven and say, God, i got to have you. I have to have you now. God honors that passion. God honors. God honors that hunger. God honors that intensification. My dear friend, the hour is now. Intensify, intensify, intensify. We're in a war. You playing for keeps? God is, and so is the enemy. It's time to ring heaven's bells for Michael. Please, Michael, come and help me now. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give an appeal right now. I'm going to give an appeal. If in your heart, now this is not a call for general rededication, by the way. If in your heart there's something inside of you, call it the Holy Spirit if you wish. If in your mind and conscience and heart there is something inside of you that is saying, Boy, what do you say we intensify you and me together? Girl, 
What do you say we intensify you and me together? If there's a voice inside of you saying, I wish you would, I've already covered you. I have, I have paid the supreme price for your freedom and your salvation. You're secure, but I've got to have you. I need, I need you where you are to be on my side, not his side. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, surprise, surprise, surprise. They're not three sides. They're only two. You can't be on both. You can only be on one, one side. The voice that says, please, would you be with me? Intensify. If you'd be willing to say, hey, Jesus, that's you speaking to me. You can have me. I will stand to my feet and you can have me. I may mess up. I may fall short. And I may forget this intensification business. But by your grace, I'd like to say I'm on your side and count me in on this intensifying war. If you would wish to send that prayer to heaven, would you stand to your feet right now? Count me in, Lord Jesus. I'm not standing up. I'm not standing up. Because I'm making some sort of, I'll be perfect forever promise. Can't do it. But I am standing up, Michael, because you stood for me. I am standing up. Count me in. God bless you. Let me pray for you. Let me pray with you. Holy Father, we're all standing. Look at that. I'm standing. There's not, nothing great in us. Please. You stood, Michael turned Emmanuel, stood all alone on Calvary, hoisted between heaven and earth to defeat the dark forces of the enemy. The intensification was supreme at Calvary, but holy God, the war has spilled over to the third millennium and we're all sucked in and we have only one side we can be on and so we stand. Dear God, please, we stand for the Michael who stands for us. Daniel 12, 1 reads, And Michael himself will stand up for your people at the end of time, believing he is standing, Father. Believing Christ our Lord stands for us. It is our honor, our humble honor to stand for him. Please, dear God, seal every man, woman, and young adult and teenager's decision right now. Seal this decision. We will intensify through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands for us. Let all the people say, Amen.